Loving God, may we hear these ancient texts, these stories that have been part of our faith tradition for millennia. May we hear them as your living word that continues to speak to us today, to make sense of life as we experience it, the world as it continues in its various uh, pathways, and especially to discern and find hope for your presence, your mission, your work, and the hope in which we find. In Jesus' name, amen. We have been uh, exploring in recent weeks now for the uh, uh, exploring God's mission plan revealed, which we are discerning from Genesis chapter 1 right through to Revelation 22. This week we're up to Genesis Nine. We're not going chapter by chapter, by the way. We are going to go through some bigger picture things. But these early chapters of Genesis are so important in laying the foundations behind the nature of God's mission, God's purposes, and how to make sense of what we experience in the world around us. Been summarizing God's mission in one line Shalom in the sanctuary of God. That I've suggested is God's great missional purpose. From the opening verses of Genesis 1 right through to to Revelation 22, God is about creating shalom. The sanctuary of God is a holy place. It is God's dwelling place where God's presence is experienced and all that comes from being in the presence of God is experienced. God is a gathering God into that space. Shalom, just to remind you, as a bit of a recap, is such a uh, significant word, and this is in particular for the guests that we have amongst us as well, just to, uh, this is a word that we've been really um, focusing on, uh, because it is so, uh, it has so many different dimensions to it. Shalom has a notion of fullness and of flourishing, and as used in the scriptural narratives, it's the flourishing of God's creation, wellness, wholeness, prosperity, peace, to be restored, to be replenished, a world where all is right and in harmonious rest. And uh, at the start of our series, I introduced this wonderful um, unpacking of that by Cornelius Plantinger. In the Bible, shalom means universal flourishing, wholeness and delight, a rich state of affairs in which natural needs are satisfied and natural gifts fruitfully employed, a state of of affairs that inspires joyful wonder as its creator and saviour opens doors and welcomes the creature in whom he delights. Shalom, in other words, is the way things ought to be. Now, more recent weeks, as we've explored the the disobedience initially through... uh, Adam and Eve, and their desire to to be gods of their own world, to decide for themselves what is good and evil, what is right and wrong, and to marginalise God in that act. And we saw through the action of Cain over Abel, and then last week as we saw the escalation of that going further and further afield in a whole society, a whole community, so characterised by that not being the way it ought to be by doing their own thing, being 
gods of their own world, their own destiny, their decisions, their choice. And God looked at that and said, what have I done? It's almost as if God looked at creation and said, the heavens and the earth, the waters and everything else is good. Good for purpose. It's got a beauty about it. But look at humanity, the human race, created in the image and likeness of God. I've made a mistake. I actually think I need to wipe out all those living beings and start again. That's where we left it last week, to a certain degree. Last week I did introduce the word, but. And uh, I'll just to finish off before I get to the but. Uh, God's purposes in creation then were summarised by this verse towards the end of the, the first creation narrative. God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply. There's work to be done. Creation is an ongoing project. The elements are there, but they need to be cultivated and to be taken care of. So the fruitfulness, the, the life-giving qualities of them uh, begin to flourish as well. And the calling of humanity is the in the image and likeness of God, has a particular role within that. So this week we pick that up and we see a, uh, a fresh start that emerges and it starts with an act of grace, it starts with God's profound pledge that creates a way for a new beginning. Now, as I said before, I did um, sort of end the, the uh, discussions last week with the word but... And I mentioned how I still recall as a four and a half year old, I know how old I was because I was just started school, Mr. Chalmers, Mr. Jack Chalmers, headmaster of St. Kennegan's College School in Auckland, six foot six, seemed like a giant, had this instruction, but is such an ugly word. It created all sorts of conversations, no least from uh, Philip and Sue Harris, Sue's maiden name is Butt. <laughs> so Sue reminded me that Butt is actually a rather nice name, uh, being her maiden name. So I assured her that whenever God uses the word Butt, it's a good Butt. Others not necessarily so much. But it does reflect on an impulse that we seem to have instilled of us in our human, character, human nature, is to say, yes, but... You know, we can see it in children, as I mentioned a few weeks ago. Government there's crown marks all over the wall and on the floor and everything else, and a child is caught in the act. And children will often find some very creative reasons to explain why that happened. You know, it slipped. Or the dog came in and took the crowns and the dog did it. Sadly, as adults, we get more sophisticated and using the word but, it's usually, you know, I'm sorry that you're upset, I'm sorry about this, but. And we say, no, don't go there. We don't need to blame shift, find someone else to blame or some other circumstance. So that's where we need to recognise that uh, before God, don't touch that wire, before God, um, we need to be very wary of going before God and saying, yes, but, because that actually, it's an evasion as well. So, where do we leave it? In uh, the, the passage we looked at last week, 
when God looked at the, the, uh, the nature, the spreading up of evil was just going further and further afield and this was not the way it was intended to be. It was just becoming messy and characterised by abuse and exploitation and injustice and people not living rightly and all the impact that came with that. And God said, I will wipe out from the face of the earth all that I, the human race that I've created and with them the animals, the birds, the creatures that move along the ground. For I regret that I made them. It's a word that's so strong in some translations, even says, I repent of it. I've changed my mind. I'm going to wipe it out and make a new start. And this was the good but that I mentioned last week. But God, but Noah found favour in the eyes of God. Finding favour in the eyes of God is not that, oh, Noah is so, so wonderful, he deserves it. It's not that sort of favour. It's more God's grace was then placed upon Noah so that as a means of grace, God would work through Noah to provide a way forward for humanity, a lifelong line, literally in the case of the ark. So Noah is chosen by God to be an instrument of God's grace, not just for him, but for the continuing um, role in creation. Now the flood narrative... Um, I know you can't read that. You don't need to tell me that. I know that's the case. Um, but I just had to show you. It is exquisitely crafted. It's what follows the form of what some call a palastrophic structure, like a flood that goes up and has a turning point, a peak, and it comes back. Well, otherwise, it's known as a chiastic structure. Now, let me just give you an idea of this wonderful word. Those who do some Bible studies love talking about chiastic structures. Probably too much in some ways. Chi is the Greek letter for looks like a cross. It's actually CH. It's like a cross. And you can structure a passage in a chiastic structure. And you think it's all too confusing? Let me walk you through a beautiful chiastic structure. Hickory, dickory, dock. The... And up the clock. The clock struck one. The mouse ran down. Hickory, dickory, dock. It's actually a chiastic structure. You go up, hickory-dickory-dock, next step, the mouse ran up the clock. Mouse struck one, the mouse ran down, hickory-dickory-dock. The turning point, the one line that's only used once, is the clock struck one. The flood narrative is an incredibly elaborate form of that structure. It's crafted in a way that is uh, uh, just so... Um, um, Wrong to say pleasing to the eye about a flood, but it's actually crafted in a very uh, powerful and effective way because it highlights the turning point where everything changes and God's purposes change from being wiping out humanity and all the living creatures. And it comes in this one verse. Chapter 8, verse 1. But God remembered Noah. That's the turning point. Everything changed. It's not just the history for Noah, but the history for the human race, the history for all creation. Now, we're dealing with a language here that is crafted in a form of saga, and it has a form of a legend within it. So it's a, it's a bit like our, our equivalent to the Dreamtime stories. The, deep, the deeper truth is what we, we're supposed to be looking for. God remembered Noah, and that's what I wanted to touch on briefly. Four aspects of this that I want to touch on um, very, very briefly, but 
tune into them carefully because you'll see these four aspects of what God does after he remembered Noah become characteristics of the gospel itself, what God, God does later through Jesus. And we see those elements picked up in the reading we had from uh, 1 Peter 3. Um, that this actually becomes a mini version of the gospel, if you like, or at least it puts the, the four foundations of the gospel in place that we can then elaborate. First of all, the gospel is redemptive. Now, at this stage, I want to highlight that this work of God is both personal and communal and all creational, all at the same time. The redemptive work that God does is for us personally. It is for our community. It is for our church community. It's for our God's desire for our neighbourhood and for our city and for our nation and for the world. All at the one and the same moment. And it's good to remember that the gospel version of this doesn't, it's not another order, is as big as all creation. It's never just uh, uh, something between us and God. The gospel is enormous in its scope and its reach into the heavens and the earth. So it is redemptive. Redemptive is when something has been so messed up it's going to be written off. And we look at it saying this is such a mess, this is such a wreck, such a train wreck, let's just discard it and start again. Redemption takes that mess, those elements, and redeems them. The person who comes in saying, I think I can redeem this situation. We can turn it around and we can actually get it back on track. Now, rather bizarrely, this is something that is expected of grandparents, or grandpas in particular, in my case, Papa. Now, it may, there may be a female equivalent, so I'm sure of that. Uh, usually, no, I won't go there. Um, Sudden word of wisdom, don't go there. Uh, the male equivalent of it for me, anyways, as a papa, is that my grandchildren seem to think they can break any toy. They can break anything around the house, anything in my garage, anything on the train set, and then produce it to papa, who can just fix things. So I get given the little bits and pieces, handing over. No pressure. And occasionally I have to say, look, I'm sorry, this is just cannot be fixed but I usually give it a go. That is actually redeeming something, taking something which has been broken and trying to restore it, which takes us to the second element, is that it is restorative as well. Now, both of these pathways, as I say, are as big as all creation, but it's good to hear them in a very personal sense because I suspect most of us, probably all of us if we're honest, find ourselves in situations that are just such a mess, whether it's because we've made choices that we regret, whether it's things that have been said that have caused harm, whether we've gone in a direction or a pathway that was just still considered, or whether we were just being disobedient. There is no mess that we can find ourselves in that God is not able to redeem. Any situation we find ourselves in, any situation... There is a choice, there is a step that we can take that is life-giving. It may be the first step of a whole journey or a pathway. There's no quick wand over some of those situations and we need to make amends and we need to own and learn and all, all those things. 
but there is a, a step that God places before us wherever we find ourselves. Sometimes that step starts with saying sorry. Sometimes it starts with being willing to let go of a grievance or a hurt that we've done. But there's always that step there for us that is both redemptive and that leads to a restorative things. God's desire that God models is that restoration of living rightly, relating rightly, understanding the, the nature of God's expectations of us and putting it into practice. That is all restorative. The whole work of uh, restorative justice, which is a powerful element alongside of the legal courses, of legal processes of actually trying to, uh, you know, the whole process of victim impact statements and for the perpetrators to hear the pain the hurt is being done, comes out of a gospel tradition that is restorative in that space. It is recreative, so that what we see. Beautifully, just to picture that, the flood coming down, eventually coming out of the ark and that the rains uh, have died down, the, the dryness is beginning to emerge, the sun is out, you get the barbecue out. Well, the equivalent of a barbecue for Noah. That wonderful space after the storm is recreative and it's amazing how things come back to life and begin to flourish again. It is recreative. And lastly, I couldn't think of an R for this word, but it's so important that I have to include it. Someone can come up with an R afterwards if you can think of it. But transformative. It doesn't just wash over the surface. It doesn't just whitewash things. It doesn't just brush it under the carpet. It goes deep in that transformation, both in terms of who we are, so right down to our desires, our passions, our ambitions, what makes us tick, what excites us. God shapes that. So we find ourselves desiring more and more of that. It's a process of transformation that is part of this work. We see it after the flood. We see it writ large in the gospel of Jesus Christ. This is God's mission. So, the rainbow. I was told today that today is actually International Rainbow Day. I had no idea of this when I was preparing it. Obviously, it's my instincts are well-founded. The rainbow symbolism comes in the flood narrative, may I just say. And uh, whenever the rainbow appears in the cloud, God says, I will see it and remember the everlasting covenant. God doesn't need reminding of that. It's not that God is forgetful like me. I've remembered a number of things in the past week that I've had forgotten to do. Um, a few people received some emails from me were saying, sorry, I know I was supposed to do this earlier. That's not what God's doing. God remembers in a sense that he has pledged himself and is committed to this covenant, this relationship, this work of redemption. And God will never forget. So, the summary of it all. God said to Noah and his sons with him, I will establish my covenant. A covenant is an agreement. It can be between equals or it can be between someone who exercises some sovereignty and with that sovereignty comes responsibility to be a protector, to create a safe space, to nurture. Um, in New Zealand, that's actually reflected in the nature of the Treaty of Waitangi, where one of the discoveries in the last few decades was that 
when the British monarch, Queen Victoria, took responsibility, she wasn't coming in as the all-powerful, I can do what I want. The wording of it, and it comes through very clearly in the Māori wording, which was done by the CMS missionaries as it happened, doing the translation, was Queen Victoria undertook to provide stewardship of the land, to provide protection, to provide some safety and to bring peace against the, the foreign invaders and others who threatened as well. It's that sort of relationship and commitment. And God has pledged himself to this task. So we have this profound pledge from God of a new beginning, a pathway that is redemptive, restorative, recreative, and may I say recreative at the same time, and transformative. We come to the New Testament and the Gospel, we see that God's purposes now have gone into a new depth and an extent uh, at a level that's beyond our comprehension. But we are reminded of this pledge that started with Noah, whenever we have the Lord's Supper, which we'll be having this month, by the way, at Easter, on Easter Day, what a wonderful time to celebrate it. Because that is God's pledge to us, both through baptism and the Lord's Supper. God says, I am committing myself to you. Come what may. And we receive that confidence and that pledge. There we find hope. May I just note at one point in this that the, the pledge is both personal, as I said before, but it touches all creation. There's no sense of God having a plan A and a plan B for creation. God's not saying, look, the world is such a mess. I'm just going to discard that world and create a new heaven, a new earth over there somewhere, or plan B. God's pledges to the, the creation, the one and only creation, to renew it and to restore it. That's good theology. But how important is it when we look at the questions like climate change and we look at all the things that are causing uncertainty in the world around us? to know that God has pledged himself to this world, this earth, this creation, and he will see it to its fullness, to its goal. Amen.